going to ask you to open your Bible with me to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. A week ago, no one knew the name Scott O'Grady. But this morning, there are a few Americans that are not familiar with his name. Scott O'Grady was rescued from Bosnia after six terror-filled days. His F-16 had been shot out of the sky by a missile. And for those days, he hid his face in the dust of the earth, praying, hoping, trembling. And then at last, he heard the sound of the American jets high overhead and turned on his transmitter. And they heard him. And within a few minutes, the choppers were on the way. And they arrived and plucked him off the face of that war-torn part of the earth. And he was safe in American hands. I can't imagine the relief that Scott O'Grady must have known as he laid back on the floor of that helicopter and was whisked away to the carrier at sea. Maybe we can identify with it just a little bit. If we remember some experience in our own lives when we were rescued from a danger that we greatly feared. Perhaps it was a disease or a car accident. Maybe it was the bully on the playground at school. But can you remember the relief that you had and then that wonderful, sweet assurance that swept over your soul that you were safe now, that you didn't have to be afraid anymore? When you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are just as safe as we can possibly be. We are safe from the condemnation of our sins and the judgment of God. And because of that safety, there is assurance that comes into our souls. Now, for some of us, that assurance came slowly. That was the case with me. I trusted Christ as a young boy. But shortly after I came to Christ, the pastor in our church left and another man came who did not preach the Bible. As a result of that, I did not come to deeper understanding of what salvation was all about for some time. It was several years, in fact, before I began to enjoy a sense of safety and security in the Lord. And I well remember when it began. Before that, there were many times when I cried out, Oh, Lord, save me. I felt guilty because of my sins as a pre-adolescent youngster. But oh, how sweet was the assurance that came to my heart eventually. I love the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. The assurance of our salvation is somewhat resting upon our feelings, but certainly not the security of our salvation. 
The Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford said, Believe in God's love and power more than you believe in your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ, and it is not the rock that ebbs and flows, but your sea of feelings. There are times when we may feel more like Christians than others. But thank God that the rock doesn't ebb and flow, as our emotions do. I thank God for the assurance of salvation that we can have. And it is not my intent this morning to disrupt the settled assurance that any child of God has regarding his salvation. However, I have an apprehension. My fear is that the contemporary evangelical church culture makes it easy for unregenerate persons to come in to the church's fellowship, be comfortable, and eventually to assume and convince himself that he's on his way to heaven. It's too easy to learn the language to observe the manners of being Christian and adopt them without experiencing the reality of the new birth. Churches are populated with people, God alone knows how many, who look and talk and act like Christians but who have never repented of their sin or savingly trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord. Behaving like a Christian doesn't make one a Christian. A Christian ought to belong to the church, but joining the church doesn't make a person a Christian. A Christian ought to pray, but saying a prayer doesn't make a person a Christian. A person ought to read his Bible, but reading the Bible doesn't make a person a Christian. One can behave like a Christian without being a Christian. This morning, as we think about firming up our foundation, which is our theme for the summer, I want to talk about this vital bedrock issue of our salvation. In Luke chapter 6, we have the recording by Luke of the Sermon on the Plain. He says Jesus delivered it on the plain. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. Now the content is very similar. Jesus probably gave his messages many times and in different settings. That could well account for some of the variety between what Matthew records in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of his gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, and what we see here in the Gospel of Luke which he calls the Sermon on the Plain. Now when Jesus delivered this message, he gave the same conclusion each time. And it's the conclusion that we want to look at. I'm going to begin reading in verse 43. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces 
good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been built, had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Now I repeat, in this message this morning, I don't want to upset the faith and stability of the genuine believer. However, if I can burst the balloon of false assurance in someone who is deceived about being saved, my prayer for this message will have been answered. I speak of false assurance. That is, one who believes himself to be saved, when in fact he is not. Where does false assurance arise? Well, I think it can arise from misunderstood invitations. Sometimes invitations are given, and there's nothing wrong with it, to lift the hand or to come forward in the service or to say a prayer. And all of those things can be fine. But some people misunderstand and they think that by doing those things, by lifting the hand or coming forward or saying the prayer, that's what makes them a Christian. And it's not. But they've done that with the misunderstanding and therefore they have a false assurance. Some people have even written a date down in their Bible somewhere saying, on this date I pray to prayer. And they think because of that, they have assurance of salvation, when in fact it is a false assurance. I think false assurance can also come from the kind of faith that does not include repentance from sin. There is a stream in the evangelical church of what is called easy believism. It says basically all you need to do is accept Jesus into your heart. And it doesn't deal with sin. The message doesn't deal with repentance of sin. And so people take a very glib step of asking Jesus into their heart, whatever that means, and they think that because they've done that, they have the assurance of salvation. And then I think false assurance can be learned from 
routine, the routine of good Christian activity, by reading the Bible, by serving in church, by teaching Sunday school, by singing in the choir, they learn good routine. I mean, these are important things that I've just listed. But by learning this routine, they have the idea that somehow that makes them a Christian. No wonder the Apostle says, with a bit of disgust actually, at the Corinthians, for they were judging him as to whether he was a true Apostle or not. And he writes to them at the conclusion of 2 Corinthians, and he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test? You see, salvation is a transforming work of God that produces lasting evidence of its genuineness in a person's life. That's my basic point. Salvation is a transforming work of God that produces a lasting evidence of its genuineness in a person's life. Now notice from our text today in Luke chapter 6 the following. First, the salvation changes the nature of the heart. Jesus uses an illustration from agriculture as well as from economics. From agriculture, he says, a particular tree bears a distinctive fruit. We would say if you plant an apple tree, you expect to harvest apples. If you plant an orange tree, you expect to harvest oranges. From economics, he says what is inside in the treasury is what you get out of it. His point is that the heart of an unregenerate person is divulged by the character and the behavior of that person. Likewise, the heart of a regenerate person is revealed by his character and by his behavior. Salvation changes the nature of the heart. It's the transforming work of God. The heart that was evil, and that therefore produced evil in the life, is radically changed by the power of the gospel to become a good heart. And that change is given evidence of by the fruit of the life. There's no New Testament writer that draws out this idea more than the Apostle John. I invite you to turn to 1 John for a moment. John, as you know, lived longer than any of the other apostles, near to the end of the first century. And by that time, John was seeing on the horizon a teaching that he knew was dangerous. And later it became a very serious heresy in Christianity. And so before he died, he attacked this teaching just as it was beginning to make its way into the church. Unfortunately, it didn't stop it. It was the teaching of Gnosticism. 
He had a number of ideas, including dualism. That anything physical is bad, everything spiritual is good. That there was a separation between the two. That the important thing was what you know in your spirit. And what you did with your body was unimportant. It was physical. It wasn't going to be saved anyway. It was no good. So just if your body has some urge, some desire, fulfill it. It doesn't make any difference. The important part is the the knowledge you have, the invisible, the spiritual part of you. And so the ethical standards of Gnostics were very, very low. They said just give in to any indulgence you want in the flesh. It doesn't make any difference. And some Christians were beginning to pick up on this. And so John says in verse 5 of chapter 1 of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He is not talking about the physical properties of light and darkness. He is talking about among other things, the moral qualities of light and darkness. Light representing what is pure and holy and good, and darkness representing what is evil and sinful. And he says, in God there is light. He is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. There's no sin or evil in God. Then he says, if we say And he will say this now several times. Use that phrase. If we say. If we say that we have fellowship with him. With God. And yet walk in the darkness. We lie. And do not practice the truth. You see John is saying the same thing that Jesus was talking about. We can't claim to be related to God who is the light. And walk in the darkness of sin. We're lying. Verse 8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, and the Gnostics would claim that, they said, It's the body that's the problem, it's not me. John says, If we say that we have no sin, notice that's. Sin the principle, sin the power, not the individual acts of it. If we say that we have no principle of sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, on the other hand, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now these are strong, strong words. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. John says, in writing this, I'm not encouraging you to sin. But he says, if anyone does sin, he recognizes that possibility. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous... And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That is, he's dealt with the sin problem. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now we'll pick it up again in verse 3. 
And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. That is, if we observe his commandments, if we hold them in memory, that's how we can know that we know God. There's been a change, a heart change. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, a person who professes to be a Christian but has no concern about observing the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a Christian. And if that person has assurance of salvation, it is a false assurance. Whoever keeps his word, however, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is, as Jesus walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. In other words, one who professes to be a Christian, even one who has some assurance of salvation, but who hates his brother, has a false assurance and is not saved. Salvation, you see, changes the heart. It transforms its nature from evil to righteous. Now John makes it clear that a righteous heart one that has truly been changed can still sin. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not thinking of perfection. I'm thinking of the direction of the heart when I talk about a change. Not perfection. But the direction has been changed. The bent of the heart. The predisposition of the heart is changed toward what pleases God. John continues this in chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, No one who abides in him sins. Now it's kind of hard in the English translation to pick up the tenses of the verbs and the implications. So let me try to put that in here for you. Verse 6. No one who abides in him sins as a practice of life. No one who sins as a practice of life has seen him or known him. The one who practices sin as a habit of life is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin as a habit of life. Why? It says, because God's seed abides in him. There's a change. And he cannot sin as a practice of life. 
Because he is born of God. He has a new nature. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness as a way of life is not of God. And the one who does not love his brother... So John just underscores the fact again that genuine salvation transforms the heart. And so as we think about our own profession of salvation, we have to ask ourselves the hard question, what is the fruit of my life? Have I experienced a change of heart? Or am I professing to know Jesus Christ while I'm walking in the direction of sin? Now let's go back to Luke chapter 6, where we see something else that Jesus says regarding the evidence of salvation. He says salvation involves the lordship of Christ. Verse 46, these probing words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now the term Lord is used as a title of respect in the Bible. But it's also used in a more deep way, more significant way, as a substitute for the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh. That's how the Jews use this very term. And here it is used that way. Jesus is saying, you call me Lord, not only in respect, but in recognition of my deity. You call me Lords, using a term that says I have the right to rule. In fact, you don't just call me Lord, you call me Lord, Lord, which is an intensive way of saying it, with a lot of zeal. He says, you zealously say to me, Lord, but you don't do what I say to do. That is not salvation. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus elaborates a little more on this as Matthew records it for us. He puts it this way, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, now hear, the, hear him. This is Jesus talking. Many, 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 many will say to me, on that day, what day? The day of judgment. We'll talk about that in a minute. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Lord, Lord, look at what I did, the miracles that were done. Look at the demons that were cast out. Look at the sermons I preached. The Sunday school lessons I taught. And Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What's the point here? Jesus says, it's not sufficient to call me Lord. You must do what I say. For in doing what I say, you are proving the genuineness that I am your Lord. Otherwise, it's just a name. And it doesn't make any difference how many good works you do. It doesn't make any difference how many miracles you perform. If you practice lawlessness, I never knew you. There are people today who say all you need to do is to get together under a banner that says Jesus is Lord. That shows that you're a genuine Christian. But not according to Jesus. That's insufficient. There has to be some practice of righteousness in the life. For anyone can say Jesus is Lord. But only those who are genuinely saved can say that by the Holy Spirit and give evidence of it in their lives. I tell you, there are many people in the world this day who in Jesus' name are feeding the poor. Who are housing the homeless. Who are giving clothing to those who have very little to wear. And those are noble, noble works. But because they're doing it in Jesus' name, they think somehow they're Christians. I think of one person. I will name her because it has been done publicly. I think of Mother Teresa. Serving the poor in Calcutta. And what an example she sets for all of us in compassion for those who have nothing. But she is also one who believes that we all worship the same God. We just call him different names. Now she calls Jesus Lord, but if the Muslims call him Allah, so what? According to her theology. Now, I am not condemning her good works, but I fear for her that she is among those who is doing wonderful things in Jesus' name and even calls Jesus Lord. And I am not her judge, but I wonder if on the day of judgment Jesus will say, Come in or depart from me. We can do lots of good things, but if we practice lawlessness, it is evidence that Jesus is not really Lord. If there isn't the law of God in our hearts, Jesus is not really the Lord of our lives. Jesus is warning here about not giving obedience to him, but only using his name for doing good. 
And then he says something else in his closing illustration. He says that salvation lays a foundation that endures the judgment. This parable, which is among Jesus' best known, illustrates that genuine salvation provides a solid foundation that survives when the torrent of judgment comes. Notice that neither of these houses was able to avoid the torrent. Likewise, God's judgment is coming upon everyone. There is one who built his house upon the ground, upon the sand, as it says in Matthew. And when the judgment came, it was destroyed, it was swept away. There was one who built his house upon the rock. And that's Jesus' way of inviting people to come to him and build their lives on him, the rock, the sure foundation. He says, they come to me. Notice how he says, they come. Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them. He's the one who builds his house upon the foundation. Salvation, genuine salvation, lays a foundation that endures the judgment of God. And so in this great closing invitation to Jesus' sermon, he invites his hearers to come, and in coming to become doers, and announces that only in doing so will they be saved. Salvation, you see, is a transforming work of God. It produces evidence in the life of its genuineness. It changes the nature of the heart. It involves the lordship of Jesus Christ in the life. It lays a foundation that endures the judgment of God. It's the only kind of salvation in the end that there is. Is that the kind of, of salvation that you possess? You see, assurance about the welfare of your soul that is based upon something less than this is an assurance that is false and may well result in shock when one arrives at the judgment seat of Christ. The assurance of salvation is in the change that takes place in the life because of Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So as we think today about salvation, and we firm up the foundation of our lives, we need to go right to the bedrock of it all and ask ourselves the tough question, is there enough evidence in my life to convict me of being a Christian? Someone looking at my life the last month, the last six months, the last two years, is there sufficient enough evidence of change in me and of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and of doing what Jesus says to do that they would conclude, yes, 
Yes. It's real in this person. We have to ask that about ourselves. Let's pray. And let's look inside as we pray. And can you say today within your heart of hearts that you know that you've come to know him? Is there an assurance of salvation that is genuine because it is based upon the change that God has made? You can see that the direction of your life is moving in the right way. Now, you may be a genuine Christian. I've caught you on a tough day and your feelings are low and you're down. May God comfort your heart and give you a reassurance that you're genuinely His, if that's the case. But my friend, if you are here today and somehow you've picked up the language and you behave like a Christian and you do good things even in Jesus' name and you call on Him as Lord and yet there is not the heart of a Christian in you. If you've never been born into the family of God, I hope you will today. And may God help you right where you're seated to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And to say, Lord, I repent of my sins. I repent of my good works. I repent of all of the stuff in my life that I've depended on except you. And I receive you and you alone into my heart as my Savior. Jesus Christ, come into me. Give me birth into the family of God. Change my heart. And I want to assure you of something. The Lord doesn't hear those words and cast them off. He promises that if you will sincerely call upon Him, He will save you. Just as much as Scott O'Grady turned that transmitter on, And it reached up to that jet in the sky who heard and who acted. The Lord Jesus in great love and compassion for you will hear your cry. All who come to him, he will not turn away. Father, seal this message to our hearts by your Spirit this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.